Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast. The Power Your Advice podcast is designed to bring financial advisors new ideas, why those ideas should be considered, and how to implement them into your business. This podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place for advisors to grow their minds and businesses. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we have a wonderful guest and brilliant mind from the other side of the world, Stuart Bell, who's a business and advice coach in Sydney, Australia. Stu has some fascinating ideas about the future of the business of advice and the opportunity for advice to become a mainstream service for the masses. Welcome, Stu. Thanks very much, Douglas. How are you? I'm good. I find your background and how you got here and what influenced you along the way fascinating. Can you go into that a bit for us? Yeah, I absolutely can. It's been it's kind of been an interesting journey. I actually um, I've been doing this consulting, coaching, whatever you want to call it, for about twenty years, which is a scary thing whenever I say it. It shocks me. Uh, I did it for about ten years at corporate, but like a lot of people, um, I had this experience of actually it was Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Workweek. I was walking through an airport and I picked it up. I read that book and I just realized, oh, I can't do this anymore. So I ended up taking a year off. Um, I thought I'd fallen out of love with the coaching and the working with advice businesses. But I ended up, when I, after I'd come back from the year, I realized it was corporate that I'd had enough with rather than the coaching. So at that point, I, I set up my business as an independent coach and uh, went away doing my sort of thing, working with a, with a, with a broad group of consultants. But I reckon um, the, the journey that I'm on right now probably started in about 2013. And whenever I'm presenting on this, there's kind of a photo that I put up on, 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 uh, on the slides, which is me, my daughter. Uh, she's three months old. She's on my, uh, on my knee. She's now seven. And I sort of, it's taken at, at a Christmas drinks with friends. And it, it all looks very happy. But in actual fact, that point in time, I just got off a plane. It had been an exhausting year. I'd been jumping around left, right, and center. And um, yeah, I was kind of, I was, I was just miserable. I felt trapped. The, the way that I was working wasn't really working. It was, it was draining me. And um, I started to look for ways to sort of change things. And I had a good friend of mine who had spent 10 years over here trying to get this tech startup off the ground. And he, he sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, Stu, there's, there's amazing things happening in the tech scene over here in Sydney. You've got to get involved. So I did. I ended up through a strange sequence of events becoming a, an investor and a managing partner in an incubator, startup incubator. And I think what really changed for me, Doug, is I, I, I started to learn a lot about the way that tech businesses are started, which is so very different to traditional business models and particularly advice models. Uh, I had some really great sort of um, teachers, people who are, who are part of our, our, I guess, our alumni. One of the guys who was actually a seed investor in PayPal which was a great story. And I, on, the, on the sly, on the sneaky, I started to coach some of this stuff to my, to my practices uh, or the, that I was working with. And funny enough, it started to get really, really significant traction. And that kind of started a process of, of writing a book about it called Finnovation. I then started a working group. The working group turned into a coaching program. The coaching program turned into a, you know, more and an online program. And seven years later, it's kind of, that's what I've had the opportunity to do, kind of take a lot of this, this thinking that's come out of the tech world smash it together with traditional advisory business models of various different shapes and sizes and, and see what comes out of it. So are advisors looking at their businesses and growing their businesses the wrong way? It's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the wrong way. It's just, um, 
the way that the world has moved, particularly the impact that technology and you know the the online world has had has been significant. And for example, you know a lot of I do a lot of work with advisors on marketing. And traditionally, your advice business model would get would get that most of its marketing from client referrals and from centers of influence. But increasingly, what, what we know is that when you know when I get recommended to go and see an advisor, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to jump online. I'm going to check them out. I'm going to check out their website. I'm going to have a look at maybe you know uh, their presence on one of the advisor rating websites we got over here. And in actual fact, these the the, the message I constantly put out there is the digital funnel. Well, the digital marketing side of your business is not about trying to bring in clients um, separate from those other ways. It actually accelerates the whole thing. It amplifies you because we know that the advice, the advice journey to get advice is quite a slow pipeline. It's quite a slow decision. It's, it's something that people take relatively slowly. So that's a, that's a really good example of, of how that's kind of changed. You know, the, I mean, another one is access to information. Like you have so much information at your fingertips now, whereas tr- a lot of advice business models traditionally were about, well, if you wanted to invest or you wanted to get you know, insurance policy, you had to go through this person because there was no other avenues. Now people choose to go through those avenues because of the proposition there versus in other areas. There's a whole bunch of areas. A customer-centric product development has been a big one. You know, you want to know why um, a lot of tech startups are able to grow so quickly and disrupt industries. Is because rather than sitting in a boardroom madman style and trying to work out what product are we going to create now, they go out and they set up experiments and they test what the what the market actually wants and they're data driven, which means by the time that they're, they're getting a product out there, they've already they've already you know validated, iterated, and proven the the, the market. Does it make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Talk a little bit about the evolution of the advice in Australia. Is is there a growing demand? And what are some of the differences between Australia and US when it comes to advice? You know what? Um, I had an opportunity of coming to San Francisco, I think it's about four years ago now. And I had I'd previously, I worked with a few advisors in Europe. I worked with a couple of advisors in, uh, in the UK. And it, it's interesting in, in speaking to a number of speakers who came to talk to the group that had gone over on the study tour. I felt like as industries, there was so much that was similar. And then there was so much that was just slightly off 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 kilt, so so much slight differences. You know, classic thing is we've got superannuation over here, which is government mandated 10% of your salary goes to an account, which is there uh, until retirement, there's a bunch of tax benefits, but essentially it's, you know, something employees have to pay. Whereas you guys have 401k, which is in many ways a similar sort of retirement vehicle, but it's slight differences in there. So I think the evolution of advice over here has been um, probably coming from a similar sort of place, but because we've had this mandated 10% of everyone's salaries going into um, retirement investments and it's sitting there until 65, it's almost given our industry this, um, you know, this guaranteed growth burst year after year after year. But I guess the journey we've been through, particularly over the last 10 years, has been just regulation on regulation on regulation on regulation. It's led to sort of people looking more and more or advisors looking more and more technology to solve the problems, which it doesn't. But it's also led to a situation now where the, the cost of advice has, has, has gone up and up and up. Like the average advisor over here um, for simple advice, you know, they're 10 to 20 hours to see the client, issue the advice documents, do the research, which is quite a significant. I mean, if you do the numbers on it, that, that tells you straight away that the minimum upfront fee that advisors can charge and still be profitable is $3,000. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't, I don't know the specifics of, you know, 
people's uh, propensity to pay fees over over in the US to, to the to the to the detail, but uh, I, I I get a feeling that people are more comfortable paying for advice over here, or or at least for a good proposition. I don't know what your take on that would be. I I think they're willing to pay for quality and willing to pay for um, people that are giving them value and yeah. good returns and and financial freedom. So I think they're willing to pay. It's it's interesting. I, I gave a I gave a talk uh, about two months ago before we went back into lockdown. And the one thing that hasn't shifted over here in probably 15 years is the percentage of Australians accessing advice. Uh, every time you see the data, it's like, oh, 15% of people over here or adults are getting advice. Oh, yeah, next year it's 15 or 17 or it's 13. And I think it's interesting that um, for so long, we've, we've uh, as an industry over here, we've said, oh, we've got to get more people involved. And I think we haven't looked at the nature of the offer and, way, and the way the market responds to the offer. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, for example, I learned this while I was in the U.S. that if you you break apart the market, you notice that, that you can you can break the market into three kinds of people: delegators, validators, and self-directed. Delegators are people who have just reached that point in life where they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. I want to pay someone else. And interestingly, they're about fifteen percent of the market. Meanwhile, you've got validators who are kind of ten, often can be younger. They're like, no, no, I've I've got some of this. I know how to look after my cash flow. I've got my income. I just need some help with this. And then you got self-directed who, you know, potentially they value information that they like having it, but they, they feel like they, they don't need to pay for help. And I think for so long, advice propositions have focused on the delegator market. And in many cases, you know, the proposition has just not been there for the validators and, uh, and the self-directed. But what's evolving now is we're seeing more and more advice businesses who are going, okay, we'll get, we're going to work with that kind of market because the sense and the data is showing that Given the right circumstances, self-directed uh, investors may become validators, and validators may become um, delegators. Which is kind of it's kind of interesting that I think it's lucky that Robo Advice 1.0 never got traction, because ultimately, otherwise, that was just looking to cut off the whole bottom end of the market. But yeah, but thankfully, we realised that there's a moment when people are engaging with Robo Advice where it says, right, click here to transfer ten thousand dollars across, and, and that's the point people want to see a human face. If so few people are seeking advice, you have this idea about advice is going to become mainstream. Yeah. How did you get to this thinking and what would that look like? One of the things I, I made a decision really early on as a business coach, which, which was, although I, I, I work only with advice specialists, some of my clients are advisors. I work with some accountants and I work with some mortgage brokers and that's it. That's my specialization. But every year I, I make a decision, I'm going to work with a business that's so far outside of my, my niche as a learning experience. That's how Corporate of Freedom, the incubator came about. I've worked with music schools. I've worked with property developers. But one of the experiences I, I worked with was, um, I worked with a, a fitness group over here called the Original Boot Camp, who was a military style boot camp. And I learned a lot about motivation, peer group management. But um, it start, I started to look at the evolution of the fitness industry. Uh, and if you think, go back 30 years, the fitness industry was like muscle gyms. It was probably some rusty equipment on the side of a tennis club and maybe a bunch of, you know, ultra wealthy people who had personal trainers. And you look at the evolution 30 years later, um, if you look at the data, the participation rates amongst all age groups in fitness-based activities is incredible. Um, the average spend over here in Australia of, of, of the average Australian a month is $80 a month on fitness stuff. That rises to about 100 bucks when you're in your 40s. 
which, you know, uh, is a fairly significant amount when you compare it to, you know, 15% of Australians getting advice. And I don't know what the number is in the US. Now, it's interesting that they, you managed to get this, this industry that is basically based upon you accepting the fact that you're out of shape, going out, working really hard, you know, sweating, being in pain, muscle, and suddenly it's become a, 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 a sort of essential thing. And it's essential because ultimately it managed to reinvent the narrative of fitness about being longevity, looking good, feeling good, well-being. Now, if you flip back at where we're at from a, in terms of financial advice, increasingly what we're starting to see is that financial stability is so entwined with personal health and well-being. It's, 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 I mean, it's always been there, but the data is starting to show it. You've got a situation where I think more and more people are realizing that um, with the, the, the amount of data coming through now, information and the pace of life, maybe they haven't got control of their money the way they think they do, as well as the fact, um, as well as the fact beyond, beyond that, I think you've just got more of an acceptance that, uh, you know, in a services-based uh, environment that people are willing to sort of get help for things. And I think this kind of convergence of, okay, maybe financial, I mean, Personally, my, my parents divorced because of financial issues. It wasn't the only issue, but it was definitely one of them. And if you look at, you know, the, a lot of the problems that people have in life, I reckon a big portion of them have something to do with finances. So it's a major cause of misery, right? Mm-hmm. So what's stopping people from, from getting help with that is, is essentially that the advice proposition isn't at a point where the fitness industry is now. You know, fitness industry 30 years later, personal training is a commodity. Having a personal trader is not a luxury. It's just one thing that you can invest in. We've got technology. That's just, it's, it's going nuts now. I mean, um, I use a tool called Gyroscope, which monitors my activity, my sleep, my stress, my like, a whole bunch of stuff and puts it together and say, hey, Stu, if you sleep more and exercise every day, you're on form, shock horror. And I think we're at the beginning of this opportunity to say, you know, advice previously has been very isolated to a certain group of people, much like fitness was. But there's a growing demand. And if we can just sort the offer out, if we can sort the way it's supplied and we can align what we do more closely, we have an opportunity to go mainstream. Mm-hmm. One additional example I want to give is we've got to change our language. Like we were talking when we, we caught up last week, I said, there's not many industries that use language as the weapon the way we do. Like in any other world, premium, which insurance premium, right? Premium to any ordinary person with luxury. Capital is the largest city in a, in a, in a country and um, returns is what you do when you, your clothes don't fit and you want to get a refund. And basis points, I've got no idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was, I've been, I was a tech geek from way back, right? And back in the day when computers, they, they had motherboards and SCSI boards and peripherals. And even they worked out sort of about the turn of the, turn of the century that if you talk about stuff like that, you're never going to get traction. And so they started talking about plug and play and mouse and look at what's happened now. Everybody's got a computer in their pocket. So what do you think is going to be the Peloton for financial services, financial advice? What's that going to be? Hopefully it's not going to be the Peloton advert because that caused a lot of issues. It's interesting. When I was over there, one of the, uh, the, the business models I really liked to hear about was personal capital. Mm-hmm. And they had a really interesting approach, which was so aligned with what, what sort of the tech world tends to do because for example, if you like an app or a, you know, something you want to use, the, f- the easiest thing to do is you sign up for a free trial, right? And you start using it and you get a sense of it's, it's great. And then you sign up for another plan and another plan. And next thing you know, you're, you're embedded. And this is kind of a, it's an adoption model, which is well known 
in Silicon Valley. Um, I, I think Nur Eyal uh, wrote a book called Hooked All About It, the way that they're getting involved. And I think what's great about personal capital is uh, they lead with technology, which is scalable and exponential. And also technology is not as frightening as having to go and sit opposite an advisor and, and tell them everything about your financial circumstances. So they lead with technology. Well, they used to, you can go to the site, you get access to a free financial plan, uh, sort of personal finance tool. Then you start to play with some of their financial modeling tools. And maybe you start to come to this realization about what you're missing out on. And at that point, there's a point at which you get the opportunity to reach out because you've decided that you want to have a conversation rather than it's a traditional, you know, sales conversion thing. And then you're engaging with an individual. And I think, I personally think, you know, we could talk about client portals all day long. We could talk about the way that plans are created and provided. But I think um, the front end for me is going to be giving people tools to come to their own conclusions about what they need and what they don't need. So by the time they put up their hand and say, all right, I want to talk to an advisor, it's, they're coming because they've recognized the need rather than having to sit in a meeting and be converted to buying a financial product or whatever it might be. I think it's also um, the media coming forward and teaching people about financial literature in a, in a good way, that it's a good thing that they should adopt, that they should not be afraid to talk to somebody about advice, that they should use these tools you're talking about. So the media has a big responsibility here. I think, yeah, I think it does. And it's what's been really interesting these past years is the, is the complete proliferation. That's the wrong word, but I'll keep going with it. Of um, personal finance bloggers. None of them are advisors, which is interesting. And that, I think that's a real shame. So people are interested in it. But I, I've, I've been asked in the past to, to come and talk and give talks on financial literacy, why it's really important. And I, and I always take a step back and I go, can we talk about this call for financial literacy because one of the things that we've got to be really mindful of is uh, something called the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you, have you heard of it? No. Okay. It's named after a couple of professors. Professors, I think, I can't remember if it was, uh, it was an English university. It might not have been. But they, they did a bunch of studies based on the idea that, or the assumption that if people don't know much about something, they'd be cautious, nervous, um, they'd lack confidence. And what they discovered in these studies was the opposite is true. People who know very little about a topic are very confident in their own ability. You know, these politicians, I could do a better job. These pilots, this pilot's doing a terrible job flying the plane. Get me up there. And it's kind of a bell curve. The, the less you know, the more you think you know, and then you kind of, you realize how much you don't, and then you sort of go further on. So the problem is, I think as an industry, again, it's down to the language thing. When we go out, and particularly classic, classic example is lawyers and doctors. Try talking to doctors and lawyers about their lack of financial literacy and you're banging up against this, this self idea that I'm a smart person, how hard can it be? I think you know, one of the reasons I wanna see us simplify our language is because I think, I mean, ultimately our world only exists because of their world, right? And the more and more we try and represent expertise as, as, as being about you know, terminology and all this rest of it, I think the more we distance ourselves and I don't think that's, I don't think that's cutting it in the internet world where language is, has, tends to be more accessible and more, if you like, I mean, potentially more democrat, democratic, would you say? Yeah. Um, my son does exactly that. If he knows 5% of something, he's an expert on it. So I'm, I always tell him, don't 5% me. Uh, <laughs> I tell my daughter, you should get out there and conquer the world while you still know everything. Exactly. You've spoken many places and in preached that advisors have to build a leveraged business. 
What do you mean by yeah. that? So one of the, if you, okay, if you look at um, what makes tech businesses capable of growing so quickly once they get the model, it's because ultimately they, they have, they're not constrained by traditional resources. I think Peter Diamandis writes about this in his book, Bold. Like if you're a product manufacturer, so let's say you, you make widgets, right? And your widgets go really well. Ultimately, the ability of you, you to produce those widgets is going to be held back by the part, how quickly you can get the parts. If you build a tech platform, you don't have that problem. As long as you've got enough storage space, as long as you have uh, you know, data, as long as you're on sort of Google or Amazon or whatever it is, you, know, you can sell as much as you want to as many people. Same with eBooks. When you look at an advice business, the constraint uh, is usually human time. It's the, uh, your capacity to see certain people. And in, in Australia, what we've seen in these past years is the amount of legislation has grown, the amount of work that's required has grown, the time's growing, which means, yeah, it makes sense. The price has to rise. If, you, if you're doing double the work, then you need to charge double the fees in order to continue maintain your profit or find efficiency here and there, but that's another story. So um, one of the problems that many advice businesses have is they go through this journey towards, okay, I want to build a business where it's not dependent on me as the founder for growth or operational. But the problem is to get there, there's kind of six phases they go through. And the constraint you're always going to be battling up against, particularly if um, you're the expert, you're the advisor who very good at managing relationships, you're, you do all the advice, you, you know the stuff, is there's only one of you, which means you've got a ceiling. Now, you've got two options. If, you, if you're comfortable with this, this sort of paradigm, and you want to get to a point where you've got a business that generates really good income, maybe it'll be worth a bit, but ultimately it's mainly an income source. Then ultimately you scale that business through profitability, bringing on more profitable clients. Um, yeah. Building enough processes so you can manage twice as many clients, but you stick to the number. But if you want to go further, then the way you've got to try and leverage your business to get through, you know, what we spoke about called the dangerous middle is systems. Uh, you've got to sort of make sure you build it, bring in the right people, your proposition has got to move away being tied to your expertise and being tied to the system that you apply to people's situations to achieve a certain financial outcome. Brand, IP, all this sort of stuff, automation when it comes into there until ideally, if you get to the right place, you get to that point where uh, the business isn't dependent on you. You can be the guy in, or girl in jeans and t-shirts coming in that half the staff have no idea who you are because after all, you're the founder. So that's when I talk about leverage, it's really about three things. Create more time for yourself as the leader of a business so you can focus on the things you need to. Um, build a system that enables you to service and have a positive impact on clients without you necessarily having to be at the center of it. And the final area is make sure it's profitable because ultimately, you know, profit is oxygen. It's, it's for me, a lot of people talk about profitable businesses and good advice as being opposite. They're not. They're two sides of the same coin. Like most businesses I've seen that got themselves in trouble with the quality of advice had resource issues. With technology being so much of the future and advisors having a significantly hard time with technology, yeah. what, are the biggest, what are the biggest mistakes they're making? You know what? When I first started sort of down this path, I used to get on, get on stages by going, by, by putting in front, oh, there's five things I could talk about. And one of those things would be, I'll talk about the 10 best apps advisors should know about. And I look back on that and I, I kind of regret that I did it because the problem is, uh, a lot of advisors, what they do is they see a problem, an efficiency problem, or, or you know, they can't get things out first quickly enough. And the first thing they do is they look for technology. Workflow is a classic example of something I work, for, work with. 
most time, the first time that, that advisors look uh, to sort out their workflow management is once they've identified a tool that they want to they use. So they go around trying to get all this information and the how-to out of their heads and into the workflow management tool. And they find out pretty quickly that um, you, if you have to train somebody and all your processes are in the workflow management tool, guess what? They have to, use, they have to learn how to use the workflow management tool before they can actually learn how to do their job. And by the way, if, if you change workflow management tools and all your systems and processes are in that tool, you've got to get it out. And if you ever tried to get data out of a software system, it's, they're not designed, most of them aren't designed to do it. So I think whilst people look for technology as a solution, technology, and I think Bill Gates said it, technology will generally only amplify the efficiency of the, what you're doing. If you've got an efficient process and you introduce technology at a point that does something you know, more easily or in an automated way, then you're going to get your, your increase. But if, you, if you're going at it and you've got no process, you've got no systems, you don't know how to do it, you haven't thought through the efficiency piece, you just dump technology in there. As Gates said, you know, if you add technology to an already inefficient process, it magnifies the problem. So I, I think for me, the biggest mistake that advisors make is looking to technology to solve the problem instead of realizing technology just enables more efficient delivery of what you're already doing. This is an unfair question because it really matters on the size of the advisor, but what are some of the biggest growth impediments for advisors? Um, I, uh, I remember sitting, sitting down with a mentor of mine a while back and we were talking about some of the challenges of being a coach in this space. And there's one thing we came up with called the experts conundrum. And it's the problem that a lot of, um, a lot of I see a lot of, of knowledge businesses uh, fall into, which is when you're so used to being the expert or presenting yourself as the expert, uh, and particularly when you know you look at something and it's got financial planning on the front of it, like financial planning marketing or financial planning software systems, you make the assumption that oh, I can work this out or I'm an expert in financial planning. So it, it, it sort of extends. And the truth is that the most I've learned about improving what I've done has come from looking outside looking at other industries in particular and going, what have I got to learn from, from that? What have I got to learn from that? And I think uh, certainly over here, traditionally, we've kind of been, as an industry, we've often been really insular and looked internally for, for, for solutions. I think that's probably a big impediment. Uh, the other one is not simply starting to build systems and thinking about how you're going to train people way too late in the game. Because the systems are a bit like... Um, they're a bit like that Chinese proverb about planting a tree. The best time to start building them is right now. It was 20 years ago or when you open. The second best time to do it is today. But the problem is a lot of businesses, once they reach that point where they realize, oh, I might need to document some processes, work out how I'm going to train the next people. They're so busy managing that growth and managing everything. They never get time and it just becomes this, this thing that just gets them stuck in this horrible midpoint between you know, small business and scalable business. Are you bullish on the advisor for a grand future? I'm absolutely bullish on it. I kind of think we st we're on the edge of a, a, a real golden age. For all of the stuff that I've spoken about with regard to um, you know, the evolution, what we're seeing over here in Australia is the, the, the demand for advice has consistently grown and it's growing more and more each year. Um, the last couple of years with a lot of the I got a lot of the media coverage and we had a, a bunch of royal commissions, which government in, uh, inquiries into advice, which sort of brought out a whole bunch of issues 
that kind of that put a lot of people off. But I all every single client I work with has been absolutely overloaded this year with leads coming in. Either people who are looking for new advisors, they're sort of they've been reminded maybe by the media coverage that they need to do something. But on top of that, what we've got over here is we've got um, an absolute exodus out of the industry. So you've got this rising demand, you've got this uh, falling supply of advisors. But on top of that, I just um, yeah, I mean, a lot of, it's interesting. Even look at the demographics. Not a lot of people realize how outnumbered the baby boomers are when it comes to numbers in terms of the generations underneath. And that, those generations, I kind of feel, are much more willing to look for leadership, look for advice and take it when they, when they get the financial resources, I guess. Yeah. And what about the people who don't get advice? Are they forever chasing where the media and the crowd send them? Or how do we find a better way to connect them with the people who can give them advice? You know, it, what was it, the whole GameSpot thing? Yeah. Where, I mean, they're out there and they're connected. And I guess this, this boils down to, um, so, you know, there's going to be groups of people who genuinely, they're good at doing it and they don't need advice. And not everybody should get advice. Um, but there are people out there who, for a whole bunch of Dunning-Kruger reasons and uh, confirmation bias, you know, they think they're experts at it and they think they know what they're doing. Um, I, I run workshops where I sometimes sort of, we do value proposition work and I'll, I'll ask the room, I'll put your hand up if you think you'd do a better job managing my financial affairs uh, better than me. And occasionally some people don't put their hands up. And I say, you, everyone should put their hands up because it's not about expertise. It's not about knowledge. It's about time. It's about focus. It's about the fact that you have a team behind you that does it. There's no way me doing what I'm doing and living my life can match the eight hours a day that you're going to spend doing this professionally. So I, I, think, um, I think the best opportunity that we as an industry can do to reach all those people out there is, is sort of make that change in language. Look at the proposition we're putting out there. Start to understand that um, technology is not going to solve the problem immediately, but it, it will help over the long term. Um, and most important, I mean, most importantly, if you're going through challenges right now, realize that this is kind of the growing pains of an industry, particularly over here with the legislation. But uh, for those who can you know, hold the line, focus on building a business that's going to work and constantly evolve, what's going to happen is you just, you're going to hit the top of this ridge and, it's, and you're going to end up realizing that all the work you've put in so far has stood you, stood you in, in really good stead. I'm, Doug, I'm very lucky I could split the industry over here in, down the middle with those who are optimistic about the future and really optimistic and those who are pessimistic. And I, it's weird that every single business I work with are coming up from the optimistic point of view. So whether that's just a optimistic people are more likely to go, I'm going to invest in coaching or something else. I don't know. If people want to reach out to you and I suggest they do, how do they connect? <laughs> um, drop me an email. I mean, you can visit the website with the terrible, honestly, the one, one choice I'd go back and make is, ch is change the name of my business because it's terrible, but it's audere.com.au. That's audere. Feel free to check out um, you know, the site. It tells you a bit about what we do. But if, yeah, if you want to reach out and say hi and let me know where you're at and, and give me a bit of feedback on, on, on your thoughts, you can reach me at Stuart, uh, which is S-T-E-W-A-R-T at audere.com.au. And I, if anybody emails me, I'll, I'll respond personally. Great. Stu, thank you so much. We appreciate you joining with us today. Thank you very much. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen.